G'day, g'day everyone. This is Rita Join and welcome to the Unbox Your Gift podcast. How to take what you love to do, what's called your passion, and turn that into a profession. And my guest today is going to explain exactly how to do that because this podcast is all about the blueprint of how that actually works. And so what I want to share with you on the podcast today is how someone's taken their profession of doing what they love to do and then being able to actually mold that and evolve that into something more entrepreneurial. So my guest today is Emily Smith, who is a sports podiatrist with over 14 years of clinical experience working with some of Australia's top athletes and teams, including the Wallabies, New South Wales Swifts and GW Giants. Emily became the director of Sydney Sports Medicine Centre at 23 years of age, the youngest board member and only female. Stemming from her personal and professional frustration with poor shoe engineering, Emily spent over a decade identifying the underlying cause of high heel pain, yes, and subsequently designing a patented footbed range. I love that. Her mission is to pioneer the outdated insole industry with scientifically oriented innovation and female-focused products that support healthy body alignment and pain-free mobility without compromising style. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rita. Thank you so much. Well, I'm very excited. I'm really excited to know about this patented foot range that you've got and how that helps women specifically who wear high heels and yes. uh, take away the pain from all that. But before we go into that, I start every sure. podcast with asking my guests, can you tell us a vulnerability, share us a failure in this journey that you've had? So I think probably the, I, w I wouldn't really call it a failure. It was somewhere, it was um, kind of, I guess, the, the, the beginning of my business journey um, as an entrepreneur. And I started with um, a footbed range that I had made in Thailand that cost me a lot of money. <laughs> um, and it was made from a material that had a patent on it itself. So I had to ship it in from the US. Um, and then I had to have it all molded and made up to my design and then obviously shipped to me. Um, and I made that, that patented um, material that I used was called Poron. And Poron is a very um, podiatry, you know, we, we use it every day in our um, customized orthotics. Um, it's basically an open cell material that has a beautiful amount of cushioning in it. And there isn't really any other insoles on the market that was using that as its primary um, material. So I decided that that was going to be the best material for me to use. And I didn't care how much it cost. I was just going to uh, go with it. And I did. And I made up, I had my 3000 units made up and it was, it was a great product. Um, except I probably should have done a little bit more market research into actually what people wanted. And the biggest feedback that I got was that people wanted gel. So, which is what naturally what a lot of the, you know, every probably 95% of the insoles on the market is actually made from gel. So I then use that as my testing product mm. and I got like, people loved it, but they still just wanted gel. Mm. Um, and so I got all the feedback that I needed from that. And now I've sort of launched more commercially with gel. Okay. So that was Probably it wasn't really a fail, but it was probably me being a little bit stubborn and thinking that I could, you know, <laughs> do it better than everybody else, which I think I can. Um, but now I know there is a reason that, you know, people want to have gel in their shoes. So, doing 3,000 units. Um, so, I basically um, 
sold them, not the majority of them. I sold a lot of them to my patients who were, you know, happy to give me feedback. Um, and so that was sort of how I really did um, tweak and change as I needed to, to then develop my um, now current design that I've got. Um, and I've still got a few in my garage. Yeah. And they, yeah, exactly. They are, they're still, I still do use them in the clinic. They are cause they, you can modify them really easily. Right. Whereas with the gel, you can't modify it. You can't stick things onto it. You can't modify it. Whereas the um, pour on you can, and it, it does work really nicely for more clinical based um, patients rather than people buying them online. Okay. 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 Yeah. Super. Super. <laughs> so now, how did you even like, I don't know, when you grow up, did you want to be a podiatrist? Did you even know what a podiatrist? I mean, how do you, how does someone yeah. choose the, the, the work of podiatry? Like, how did you I know. So I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was growing up. I grew up on a farm. Um, I grew up, my, both my parents were science teachers. So I had a very, I had, I had a bit of a scientific brain that I didn't really know that I had. Um, and there was a lot of what my dad did on the farm. I was his, you know, little wing woman. And we had lots of problem solving that we'd have to, you know, fix this tank or fix this whatever. And, you know, we'd have to work out a way to do that cheaply and resourcefully. And, um, you know, so I sort of was, that kind of gave me a really nice basis of, you know, that sort of underlying um, problem solving skill. And then I was a hockey player. So I um, ended up, I was not a bad hockey player, but I ended up having um, really bad shin pain that people just couldn't really resolve. And so I was going to physios and I was going to podiatrists and um, I basically, I really enjoyed my podiatry visits that I had with my podiatrist. Um, and so that's what I thought that podiatrists did. I thought that they, you know, looked at your running mechanics, they looked at your walking gait, they made you up orthotics. So I was like, yeah, cool. I think I could do that. And I, I think my, just my biggest goal was to go to uni. I just wanted to go to uni and I wanted to, to play hockey at, you know, university level and in Sydney and, um, and sort of go from there with my hockey career and sort of fell into podiatry because, um, I don't know, it just kind of suited my, what I wanted to do. And, um, as far as kind of, you know, my mark that I got from, from school and all of that. And I sort of just fell into it. And my first, uh, lecture that I had was on corns and calluses and all these toenails. And I, and I said to the girl next door, like sitting next to me, I was like, why are we talking about all this stuff for? And she goes, oh, that's what podiatrists do. And I was like, what? Not in my lifetime. <laughs> so I just naturally sort of fell into the sports side of things. And I was um, kind of lucky enough that I impressed the right people when I was at uni and managed to get a, a pretty good job um, where I was offered a directorship at a young age and kind of just went from there. And really was able to hone my skins in the, my skins, hone my skills in the... <laughs> <laughs> in the sports podiatry world and working with lots of sports doctors and sports physios who were, you know, at Olympic level. And, you know, that was sort of all where it came from. Yeah. So, so as you work with, with sports podiatry, you don't deal with calluses and... You don't... No, we do a bit of... No, <laughs> we do more, like blisters, are quite a mechanical issue. So we do a bit of blister prevention and blister management, um, but not so much actually taking off corns and calluses okay. so <laughs> you, dodged it. you totally dodged it <laughs> i have i've never worked in a hospital i've never really done diabetic feet um i just absolutely dodged it yeah okay. and 
to be honest, to be honest, people love doing that kind of work and they're very, very good at it. I just, it, I never had an interest in it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you deal with like smelly feet? Like athletes must have smelly feet at least. I mean, do you get uh, you know what? It's sort of the 15-year-old boys that have smelly feet oh. and you can just see the look of horror on their mum's faces when they take their shoes off. It's quite funny. But um, <laughs> but to be honest, it's kind of like when you go, I don't know, to the dentist or the gyno or whoever else, you go and have a, you know, brush your teeth before you, mm. you go and see somebody about it. And most people are pretty fine. And you know what? I grew up on a farm and there were far worse smells, you know, and so I'm kind of pretty okay with that stuff. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I think, yeah, it, yeah, it, that's the least of my worries. I put my hands in people's shoes all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Better you than (laughs) you got more of a stronger stomach than I do. Okay. So so being a podiatrist, 14 years in clinical practice, and then you got to work with some top athletes. Now, how does someone, I mean, I know you said you worked really hard. You got noticed by the right people at university and they said, why don't you come over this way and work with athletes? And then that's yes. how you became a sports podiatrist. So working with groups of or like a high profile uh, teams, like the Wallabies, New South Wales Swifts, and like, did that, does that just come in terms of just that was part of the job of these guys coming in or was it some, or did you have to go uh, and get them to come along? So I have worked with individual athletes, um, I guess, inadvertently from the clinics that I worked in. So um we work in the New South Wales Institute of Sport Building. So we see a lot of the N-Swiss athletes that come through naturally through our clinic anyway. Mm. Um, And then from there, I just, you know, you get to know physios and you get to know sports physicians and surgeons who are in those positions that, and they recruit you and they're like, I want you to come and work with us. Um, And that's just kind of how it evolves. And so I just, I basically see them when they need to see me. Um, I don't tend to sort of, um, be too active at games or anything like that but it's more just um, managing foot pain and injuries and ankles and knees and everything else that you know whatever they're having a problem with from a podiatry perspective which you know I have a fairly active role with someone like the Swifts the team um, in their preseason, and then I just kind of you know see them as we need to during the season okay okay yeah. so that the fact that you do that how did you come about this range and what, what prompted you to create a footbed range number one and then how did you go about the process of getting it finalized and getting so if someone's listening to this and going well I've got an idea like how did you go about getting a patent so first of all how did you mm. there's a problem to begin with like yes yeah yes so my um I think clinically I saw so a lot of what we do as podiatrists is um particularly in my world is customized orthotic so you know, somebody comes in, we, we make something that is quite specific to what they need, to their footwear, to their pain and, you know, their sport, whatever it would be. Um, but the biggest thing that I saw with women, so I have a, um, a clinic in Macquarie Street in the Sydney CBD, which is lots of corporates. Like that's pretty much, I see corporates all day. Um, and so you see a lot of women particularly, but also men who want to wear their really nice shoes and you just really making something that's customized for those shoes doesn't work a lot of the time so they have to be quite deep and quite um sort of you know you've got to have laces and all that sort of stuff that people don't want to wear they want to wear their nice ballet flats or they want to wear their heels or their court shoes or um their wedges whatever it would be and so i basically 
um, I always knew that I wanted to make high heels more comfortable. I did my um, thesis at uni on the high heel biomechanics and basically came up with crickets. Nothing, there was nothing new that really kind of sparked my interest and was like, oh, you know, actually that's got something in it. Mm. Um, but clinically I was seeing people wearing heels all day long and seeing what actually was happening to the shoe. And what was happening to the shoe was that the shoe was actually rolling outwards and wearing out on the outside edge. So if you have a look at some of your high heels, you'll see that they'll wear it down on that outside mm -hmm. edge of your heel. And that's why you have to go have them rehealed. Mm -hmm. And which didn't make a lot of sense to, you know, with what I was um, reading in the research, not, it wasn't really being picked up with the actual mechanics of the, the foot. It was more about how much load you were putting through the ball of the foot that was actually causing the problem. And so then, you know, naturally time goes on, you see more and more people. And um, I do a lot of calf muscle exercises in my job. So getting people to do calf raises, and, you know, you've got men, women, people who are fit, people who are athletes, people who aren't fit. And, you know, you get to a certain point in a calf raise and your feet will and your ankles will roll outwards. And it's called the windlass mechanism. So basically, there is a mechanism within the foot, which is um, based around the plantar fascia, which most people maybe would know what that is if they've had any kind of foot pain. Um, and so basically what happens is when you get to about four centimeters off the ground with your heel, your feet will naturally roll outwards. So um, it was by picking up that little part of the biomechanics that people had really missed as far as wearing high heels was concerned that then I was like, okay, hang on, if I can actually pull people in just a little bit and redistribute the pressure and wedge them so that they are not loaded right on the outside of their feet, then I can change the mechanics within the heels and stop a lot of the um, foot fatigue and the leg fatigue that's involved with the pain that is when you're in a high heel and also the ankle injuries as well. So um, that was how that's sort of the mechanics behind high heels. Like, does that all make sense? Yeah, or yeah. yeah it does. Okay. Um, high heels absolutely makes sense. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you get more tired, like as you, you sort of hit maybe the one hour or two hour mark, depending on how conditioned you are and your feet will naturally, naturally roll out and you'll start to scrunch your toes. Yeah. So your toe scrunches get involved because your calf muscles have tired out. So, yeah, so it's all this knock-on effect that happens from that and then your feet get tight and, you know, then you start to go into flat shoes and they're, they're already tight. So it's a big, um, it's sort of just a bit of a snowball. Okay. So basically then I like, so I would just kept on observing, 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 clinically, testing, observing, testing, retesting. And then I got my product that was made up and tested that further. And really it was quite, the actual design of it was really, really good. Like I said, it was just the fact that it was made out of foam that people didn't really like. Um, and so what I did, I basically, um, so it was about 2000 and, uh, 2014, 15, um, I was on mat leave. And I was like, right, this is the time to do it. Um, I'd sort of, in my own head, I'd kind of given up the fact that I was, um, I was sort of moving on from clinical a little bit because I, you know, was pregnant and having a baby and all mm -hmm. of that. So um, I was able to kind of um, subdivide the, the clinical me from the new me, which was a bit of a, I had to really work on that a lot. A new identity. Um, but I, a new identity it was. And I... Um, so that was right. I was like, right, I'm actually going to make a new business out of this. And cause I can't sit still, I can never sit still. So I'm, I was like, this is the time I'm going to do it. So I started my patent process. Um, and 
I was really lucky. I got some really good advice actually from my sister-in-law who was a solicitor and she's like, you've got to get a lawyer involved with this stuff. Um, and so I did, I've got a really, really great patent attorney and he's just been awesome because navigating the patent process yourself is, well, I haven't done it myself, thankfully, really, really. Like I just can't speak more highly of um, my attorney and it's a costly um, thing to be doing. It really is very expensive and it's ongoing as well. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's ongoing. So I'm, <laughs> I might still get my bills from my patent lawyer and my husband's like, God, when is this going to stop? And I'm like, it's actually probably not going to stop. You have to, once you've got your patent, then you have to, um, I think it's every year. It might be every two years, depending on the jurisdiction, you have to be paying fees. Um, and I mean, it, it does very much slow down, but it was, it was a big, big process. Um, and I've managed to get a standard patent, which is 20 years, um, which is amazing. And in so Australia, New Zealand, um, China, which was important to me because that's where I'm now getting my gel insoles made. Um, and Europe, I haven't heard back from the US yet. So I'm still, I'm still like six years later, wow. still in the process. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy. It's such a, it's a crazy process. So um, yeah, first topic then, once you patent something and then you've, okay, so you've now got it for 20 years in those particular countries and you're still waiting for the US to give, them, give you the OK, yeah. Yeah. you're still having to pay a solicitor. What are you paying him for to do? Like, so he, each time, so everything, um, so you've got all your different jurisdictions that come through the patent lawyer. Yeah. He then says, you know, this is what they've said. Um, this is what they want you to do. This is, you know, what we suggest you make changes in. Then you make your change, you know, and, oh. the, and, then, and then you sort of pay for that change to be made because you're also paying for the solicitor in the US or in... Um, wherever, China, everything has to then be um, done through them. So it's not really, he's just kind of like a middleman in those instances. Right. Um, he sources them all. He knows them all. He's great. I love him. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, just, I'm just curious. Like what is, what oh, is work? What's yeah, work? it's a, it's, I had no idea. It was going to be such a big process to be honest. And um, I'm really, really glad that I did it. Um, and I hopefully will have something to sell at the end of it. Um, you know, that, <laughs> that is, which is not really my plan, but you know, I think, you know, there will be a point in time where I'll be ready to move on from it and I will have something that has got a patent on it. Yeah. Okay. So, so currently are you selling the footbed range or you can't at the moment? Yes, I am. So I'm, I'm selling them online. Yep. So when you, um, so before you you get your so we've actually got the patent through for everybody except for the US. So in the US we'd have to put patent pending on that. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yes. Yep. So you can start selling whenever you want, but you're not protected. Yeah. Yeah. So once you've you know, but pretty much once you've lodged, you put patent pending on everything. Okay. And how long have you been selling it for? So I launched second week of COVID. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. So I um, had to kind of tweak and, you know, my marketing plan, which was they are, they're designed obviously for, I've got two products. I've got one for flat shoes and one for high heels. Right. So anything that's above four centimeters, I constitute as a high heel. Anything below that I constitute as a flat. Um, and they are, they were originally obviously designed for fashionable flats and, and heels. Um, so they're very slimline, 
they are very kind of incognito. They sit in there beautifully and you can't tell that they're in there if they're in like a, a mule or a sandal or something like that. They just sort of sit right up nicely underneath your foot. Um, but I did sort of pivot a little bit and um, make them so that they could go also into your trainers as well. So in, like into your sneakers and your running shoes, which they work beautifully in. They just don't, you have to wear them with the liner as well. So okay. you just take your liner out, put them underneath and then put your liner back on top yeah. and they work beautifully. Yeah. So if I'm wearing high heels and I'm doing an all day, three day workshop, for example, and I'm wearing high heels and I put these inserts in and that's going to cushion my foot so that I don't get as tight as quickly. Is that, is that the result that I'm after? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they've got, they've got an inbuilt wedge on them that stops that rolling out of your foot. So it protects your calf muscles and your lateral ankle and your toe scrunching muscles. Right. Um, and then I've got a hexagel material, which basically is like little hexagon pods that sit underneath the ball of your foot. Because my the reason I didn't, I should explain probably, the reason I didn't use gel in the first place is because my experience of gel was that you you put it in and it feels great for about three seconds and then you're kind of like, oh, that was that's it. You know, it's sort of there's no long lasting comfort effect from that. So what I really wanted to make sure of with my product is that I was able to create that kind of um infinite bounce and so and with the hexagel pods they kind of move like together and, and against each other and away from each other so um you've kind of got this constant flow of movement through there rather than them just being uniform right right if right. that makes sense okay yeah, so yeah so i built in a few things into the pods that you can't really see um i i know that that they're in there and probably a podiatrist would be able to go oh yeah that's higher mm -hmm. than that but basically the wedge um, is all the way through from the heel through to the, the ball of the foot. And some of that's built into the uniform um, gel and some of it's built into the hexagel at the front. And then it, I've got a little metatarsal dome in there as well to help people with bunions and with, um, you know, sort of hammer toes and that sort of thing. So I sort of added in all the things that I see clinically that work mm -hmm. into the, the design of it. Yeah. So yes, basically it's about, really trying to minimize the fatigue of the foot and of the legs when you're in those shoes and give you the support that you need. Um, obviously, if you're maybe at the end of the three days, you're still going to have, you know, sore feet, um, but not to the same extent as you would have otherwise. Wow. So, and you'll be able to recover a lot more quickly. Yeah. Okay. And it depends on the shoe as well. So if you're in a boot, your boot will hold itself on your foot really nicely. Mm -hmm. And so it means that all your muscles can just kind of chill out a little bit more. Whereas if you're in a strappy sandal or a mule, something that you have to grip to hold it on, yeah. it's going to make your feet work a lot harder. So yeah. there's going to be, yes. Yeah, so there'll be a better effect if you're in a, in a shoe that's holding itself on well. Okay. As a podiatrist, long-term, is it bad to be, because I've heard this, but I don't know if it's true. Is it bad to wear high heels for your feet? Like as you, as you go on in life, I mean, does it hurt mm. your feet? Does it, Oh, you become mangled. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think if you were to wear pointy toe pumps that are, you know, 10 centimeter high stilettos every day of your life, you're lucky first and foremost, because most people can't do that. <laughs> um, but they, it's probably more the shape of the toe box. So the tightness of that toe box, that's going to cause the damage. Um, most people who can wear heels very easily and well, um, they are well conditioned for that and probably their foot posture is a little bit so lower sitting lower at their forefoot than what they have at their heel so they struggle to go into flat shoes and that can be something that they have it's a genetic predisposition or it could be just because they've worn 
um, heels for all their life and they've actually sort of created that um, really sort of high arched foot. Um, so to answer your question, I wouldn't recommend wearing high heels all day, every day. I think, you know, going between um, heights of heels, so going between flats and going, you know, into your, your high heels when you need to. And then when you, if you're sort of spending a lot of time on your feet or you're sort of counting steps, if you like. So I always say it's sort of about how many steps you're doing in that shoe. So if you're literally standing there for half an hour, go for gold. But if you're walking around a conference, you know, and you're in a huge arena um, and you're there for three days, you yeah. probably want to have a, you know, put your, your mid-height ones on if you, if you can or for half of it or, you know, for some of it so that you give your feet a little bit of a break. So that's really interesting, the fact that you say that it's the actual, the, the triangle, the, the pointy part of the shoe that actually causes the damage and not the heel and not the, like the yes. arch that's sitting up. Your, your foot yeah. is like that, but it's the actual pointy part. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah, because most of the most beautiful looking shoes are mm -hmm. too narrow for people's feet and our feet aren't shaped in that way. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's what creates more that bunion, okay. that shape of the, you know, you've kind of got that yeah. angle at the toe. And then once you've got a bunion, you'll probably end up starting to get um, your toes popping up as well. Um, the toes popping up, so more of like a hammer toe, yeah. They, that can, because you know how I said you um, use your over scrunches. Yeah. yeah. So that can create that as well. But a lot of the time it's, it's probably 60 or 70% of it, the shape of the shoe and then 30% of it, the heel height. Cause you can get chunky heeled shoes that are going to give you quite a bit of stability. Yeah. Whereas your stiletto really thin heels are going to make you more unstable, which means you need to make, um, use your muscles a yeah. lot more yeah. and you know, it's harder on the body. Yeah. So rule of thumb, get thick heels and then put one of the inserts in to just cushion and give yourself more, more power to just yeah. be mobile in it. Yeah. So to, yeah. So the wedge on the footbed is um, what's going to give you your support and your stability. And then the cushioning is what's going to give you your comfort. Okay. Okay. Love that. Love yeah. that. Now, knowing what you know now of all the work that's gone in to put this, your invention together, I mean, does it have a name? The footbed drain, does that have a name? So it's called Emily Bravewood. So oh, okay. I, Emily that's, Yeah. Okay. Emily Bravewood for bed. So there's my, there's, I've got a flats range and a stiletto range, but they don't need to be a stiletto. It could be any kind of heel. Yeah. So for your flat range, why would someone wear it for a flat shoe? Because if it's already comfortable, why would you need it for a flat shoe? So a lot, so a lot of the time it's actually, this is probably more of a myth than anything is, the myth is that flat shoes are going to be better for you than heels. Yeah. But basically, yeah, so flat shoes can be terrible for your feet, um, particularly more your ballet flats, your cheaper, you know, kind of um, uh, more ballet flat styles that really cut quite low on your toes. Mm -hmm. They are terrible for your feet. And um, so basically what the, the footbeds are de designed to do is to go into those shoes to make them more functional and to add that fundamental level of engineering that they just don't have okay okay yeah what without taking up too much space because that's the key <laughs> yeah yeah no no absolutely but what about yeah. that have like the flat shoes that have a very tiny or very thin layer of base like do you know what i mean like where you're oh yeah you actually feel the floor like that's exactly okay they're bad yeah they're not good they're not good okay. for your feet all right okay yeah so <laughs> as a rule of thumb you probably want to be aiming for around about a 15 to 3 uh, 15 millimeter to 3 centimeter heel so dead, dead flat is really not good for your posture. It's not good for your shins or your arches or anything. 
Really? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So a, ru a running shoe is tw like 10 to 12 millimeters in heel pitch. So higher at the heel than the forefoot. So you kind of want to be, you know, thinking about that and then applying that to, you know, more fashion based shoes. So you're going to get more, that little nice little wedge heel is what you want. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. So um, the, the process of patenting, you've explained that. Now in terms of the research for the patent, if someone's looking to patent their idea, their invention, what, what is step one, step two, step three? Do you have to go to number one, see if anyone's invented what you've had? Like, how do you even go about Absolutely. Process? Yes. How yes. did you go about that process? So you can go onto IP Australia um, and they, you can look up our patents that we've got in Australia. Um, but if you're looking to get an international patent, you'll, you're probably better off also looking um, at all the different jurisdictions that you want to potentially get your patent in. Okay. Um, so you there's there's lots of search um things that you can do on there on the um on the intellectual property websites mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um that was probably one thing i didn't do very well <laughs> was i looked at all the australian ones but i didn't look at um the american and um well it's both. usually the a lot of the say the chinese goes off the european and the um american as a rule of thumb so if you kind of cover your bases there then you're, you know, you, you've kind of got yourself covered. Okay. Um, so that would be the first step. Second step would be I wrote, basically wrote out my entire um, patent kind of um, document that I looked at other patents and I kind of was like, okay, well, this is how you write out a patent. So I just, I wrote my, my draft patent. And then I decided that was when I was going to engage the patent solicitor. So I took it to him. Um, a lot of the times you have to get drawings done up. Um, but he, the great thing about my guy is he had an engineering degree and his law degree. So he fully understood what I was trying to say and what I was trying to do, um, which was honestly the best. Um, and he could then translate that into um, kind of what I needed to, to put in, in legal terms. Wow. Gee, that's really interesting. An engineering degree and a law degree. Like that. That's and a law degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And he's a young guy and he's just awesome. Did you just Google him and find him like that? No, I found him through my sister-in-law who was oh, a, yeah. um, who is a the solicitor and her boss recommended him. Okay. And yeah. Okay. He's awesome. Yes. Do you still practice in your clinic? I do. Yes. So I practice three days a week. Okay. Um, so I practice um, uh, Tuesday to Thursday. So I have Mondays and Fridays off, which is nice. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I think keeping your, you know, your finger on the pulse as far as, you know, all of that. And it helps me with my Instagram content and yes, yes. <laughs> all of that. Yeah. So I was going to say, so you, as you're still working four days a week in your practice and then you're working on this, on, on this range the Emily Braidwood range to get people knowing about it, you know, selling it online. How do you divvy your time up? Cause you're a mom, you're yes. a professional working in a practice and then you're an entrepreneur inventor working on this thing. So how do you divide mm. your time to give to each? Uh, so Monday to Thursday is very clinical for me. Um, I still do, you know, in my lunch break, I'll still be sort of on my emails and, you know, mm. trying to get Emily Braidwood things off the ground. Yeah. Um, Mondays, Fridays and Saturdays is dedicated Emily Braidwood day. Um, so I literally put on my noise cancelling earphones and just like nut it all out. 
Um, I've just launched on Amazon, which has been a bit of a crazy experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm all for kind of just learning it all yourself so that hopefully eventually I'll be able to outsource and, but I need to be able to know what, Mm. um, you know, what they're talking about, Mm. the problems that they're having. Um, I want to be all over it. So, um, which I built my own website. I've done all of that. I've sort of just been a bit self-taught in everything and it's good. I get to fix my own issues and I can half code now. And Oh my goodness. <laughs> you can half code. What about uh, I, I can read it. I can read it. I'm not very good at writing it. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. What about you being a mum? How much time are you able to spend with your family? Yeah, so I, um, so I've got one daughter at school, she's in year one, and then my other daughter's three. Yeah, so um, I, so we've got an au pair, which helps massively um, as far as our sort of just being able to have the girls around and I'm here um, and I'm here if they need me, but they know that it's work time. So I pretty much, I pick up um, my daughter from school at 3.10 and then I'll work for another couple of hours then we'll go for a walk together or, you know, we'll cook dinner together or something like that. So I tend to sort of clock off about 5.30. And I, my morning times are with them. I try and go for a little bit of a, you know, a run or a walk or something like that early in the morning. And um, then Sundays is family day. So we dedicate Sundays to family day and we just do whatever we want to, you know, whatever the girls want to do. And I don't know, it's, I think it, it works. I think it's good for the girls to see, that, um, you know, like actually my daughter's, my youngest daughter said to me the other day, she goes, but girls work from home. And I'm like, no, we don't. <laughs> Not all the time we don't. <laughs> I like, I guess, yeah, it, I, I find, um, I find we've got a fairly good, healthy balance, I guess, in our household, which is nice because we have got some nice help. So um, yeah, I think I just, when I feel a bit out of whack, I pull it, rein it back in. But if I get really excited about something like my Amazon launch, I'll focus on that for a little while and yeah. then I'll be like, oh, hang on a second. It's kind of eating into some family time here. So I've, re- I've got to watch myself. It's something that I, um, I'm very aware of. My husband has made me very aware of it. And I, you know, <laughs> not going on holidays and focusing too much on, on yeah. my EV time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, totally yeah. Get, I totally get the challenge. Yeah. I'm just very interested to know the help that you received the all pair. A friend of mine has one and she said it's the best thing she's ever, she's got six kids. She says it's the oh, wow. best yes. thing she's ever done. Yeah. Is there anything that you, with someone listening who was like thinking of getting an au pair, is there any questions that you would ask an au pair to, you know, kind of find if the, it's the right match for your family? Uh, I think most definitely. Um, you've got to, I, I sort of, I, I feel like I have a fairly good judge of character. So I will interview them once and then I'll interview them again. And if I feel like there is not a match as far as personalities is concerned, I don't go there. Yeah. It's a personality match. You've got to be able to live with them. Um, And sharing your house with the the old pair. Not really. It's sort of a choice that you make. Mm -hmm. And um, they, you know, we've had three au pairs and they've all been very like, amazing amazing with the girls i mean no experience like you're not you know you you know you're not sort of you're paying somebody pretty much who's a uni student who wants to have a you know a gap year um but they're responsible they're always here like one of the beauty of having them in your house is if you 
you know, have to run out for some reason or whatever, you just knock on their door and they tend to oblige and it's kind of nice and yes. it goes both ways. Um, it's not, I, I, I really like it. I, I think um, for us it works. All yeah, right. I like the convenience of it. Okay. Well, it's yeah. much better than, I guess, childcare and sending them out to after school care or something like that, which... Yeah, yes, yes. around. Yeah, so we've got... My daughter's in childcare two days a week, so <laughs> she kind of gets the, the bit of the balance there and then my mother-in-law often takes her one day a week as well. But um, it's more that, you know, the other day I got a phone call from school saying, um, you know, um, the Annabelle needed to be picked up in the middle of the day. And so I just, I was at work and I was 45 minutes away. So I just rang our pair and I just said, could you go and pick her up? And she was within 10 minutes, she's down there. Yeah. You yeah. know, like you just, it takes that stress out of it, which for me, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Making life easy is good. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm just, I'm loving your invention. I'm like, where can people go and actually find out about the Emily Braidwood range, the footbed, like where can we go look at it, take a see and see if we just actually try it and purchase it. Where do we go? Yes. Yeah, so um, emilybraidwood.com is my website. Um, now, hopefully I'm live on um, Amazon, but obviously I prefer if people bought it through the website. Yeah, sure. um, <laughs> yeah, you're paying um, Amazon a third of what I'm doing. Um, anyway, <laughs> and um so yeah, that's probably the, the best place. Otherwise, um, I have them in my clinics if people are in Sydney, um, <laughs> that they can come and have a look and, and yeah. Okay, well, fantastic. So what I wanna do now, uh, Emily, is I wanna ask you some rapid fire questions. These are questions uh, that I'm just gonna ask you and off the top of your head, whatever comes first is the right answer. So don't think a lot cool. about it, but it's just yes. short, sharp questions and answers to just get uh, people to just tie up the interview of what we've discussed so far. Sure. Cool. So what would you say would be your number, since having launched Emily Braidwood, what would you say has been your number one marketing strategy? Oh, uh, Instagram. Instagram. Fantastic. Yeah. What's the hardest part about turning your passion into a profession? Finding the right, uh, oh, uh, passion into profession. I think finding the right uh, road to go down. So yeah, just honing, honing in. What's the easiest part? I think it's just, it doesn't feel like work at oh, all. Like, yeah, you just love doing what you're doing. So it doesn't feel like work. Love it. One of the biggest lessons you've learned on this journey that you've been on so far. Um, I think being patient is probably the biggest thing I've learned actually. I mean, it's, I had no idea it was going to take me six years to get to the point where I'm at now. So <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think patience is virtue for sure. <laughs> Do you prefer <laughs> texting or talking? Texting or talking? Um, talking. Talking. Okay. Yeah. If you, were you, where would you go if you were invisible? Ooh. Uh, where would I go if I was invisible? Ooh. Buckingham Palace. I don't yeah. know why that came into my head. <laughs> I want to know what goes on behind those walls. <laughs> How I walk there. What kind of heels are you? <laughs> exactly. Oh, there's so many things I'd love to see. <laughs> love it, love it. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? Uh, I think that you. Well, I don't think other people. Hmm, do other people think it's crazy? 
I don't have any. I think, I mean, I just have a, I have a lot of sort of self-belief and I think that you can do whatever you want to do. And, um, you know, I came from a very humble background and, um, I don't know. I think that if you let, if you let other people's sort of disbelief get in your way, you, you won't be able to achieve. But I think if you can just push through and ignore what other people are saying, um, and what their opinions are and just go with your gut instinct, then you'll, you'll do amazing things. Just like what you did with that uni student saying to you, that's what podiatrists do. And you're like, no, yeah. no, no, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I'm really in this industry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this is the exact industry I need to, it oh, needs exactly. a shake up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Last question, fill in the blank. Turning your passion into a profession is? Oh, empowering. Oh, I love that. Love mm. that. And such yep. an important message for your little babies. Such an important totally. Message. Yes. Thank you. Do it, do it, do it. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. No, you've just been a breath of fresh air. Just the fact that you've taken us through the rigmarole, the process of what it is to patent, the six-year journey it's taken you to get to where you are and sharing your journey with it. It's just, you know, it puts a spotlight for anyone wanting to actually go and do what you've done. It puts a spotlight on what it takes. And if the passion is strong enough to see you through that journey, whether it takes someone mm. six years, six months, 12 years, this is what it, yep. it's about. Yep. So thank you so much for being so transparent. No worries. Thank you so much, Rita. It's yeah. been fun. It's been lots of fun. Thank you guys for <laughs> being with us on this podcast. If you like this episode, please like it, comment and share. And we shall catch you on the very next episode. God bless. <laughs>